Hear the word of the Lord. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's go before that very throne of grace even now and ask for the help that we also desperately need. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as those whom you have called out from this world to hear the gospel and respond in faith. We assemble together as those who are aware of our unworthiness, that we have all fallen from the glory of God, that we have chosen darkness and chosen sin, and yet in your infinite kindness and mercy, you have chosen us. And you have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, made alive the faith inside of us to believe and trust in the good news of the gospel. Uh, that you activate a faith given to us, uh, outside of us, and yet transforms all of us. That we are not the same creature we were before, and so we assemble as those who we know have been redeemed, uh, who have been given life eternal, life from above and yet who live in bodies from below, bodies that are temporal, bodies that you call flesh, and a flesh that is so often at war with what is inside of us that has been made new. And so we acknowledge that battle, and we ask you today by the Spirit of God to help us to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us, we pray, to obey you out of hearts filled with gratitude and joy for what you've done for us. And may we be those who carefully study and know the Scripture and your law, but also who understand that we will never live up to your standard in this life. May that not discourage us, however, and instead point us to the one who has lived it perfectly and then gives that life to us. Help us fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one in whom all hope resides, the one who has done everything on our behalf, uh, the one who will give us his righteousness so that his righteousness is the only thing that is ever seen by you, and that we would put our great hope and confidence in him such that with that kind of assurance we face the daily battles and struggles, knowing that you are greater who is in us than he that is in the world. 
I pray that our minds would be open to your truth today and that our hearts would be tender enough to receive it, that we would be humble, that we would be those who trust and obey, those who take this word at face value as your declaration, your verdict, your judgment, and that we would see ourselves in light of the glory of God and our own sinfulness and be humbled enough to call out for the help that only you can provide. But then carry us out of here overwhelmed by your mercy and grace. And may that be what resides with us until you call us back together again. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is the fourth and final message in a series that we've entitled Christ Our Rest. It began back in the beginning of chapter 3 and has now carried us all the way through the end of chapter 4. And what we'd like to do this morning is take a look specifically at verses 4, 11 through 16. And what I would like to propose to you this morning is that Christ offers rest to the faithful. He offers rest to the faithful. We've already said that rest comes to those who are humble, towards those who are tender-hearted, towards those who are obedient, and now, fourthly, to those who are faithful. And uh, the outline is pretty simple for this morning. Um, I believe that what you're going to see is that the faith that is lived out by God, given to us, the, the faith He gives to us that we live out, the, the habit of faith, as Thomas Boston called it, is a habit of faith that plays out every day as manifest in those who respond, agree, confess, and approach. They respond they agree, they confess, and they approach. It's our outline for this morning, taking us through these magnificent verses in Hebrews chapter 4. So please follow along as we look, beginning in verse 11. This is God's holy and inspired word. It begins with this, and I'm going to say it is our ability to respond. He says, let us therefore strive... What does it mean to strive? When the author uses the word strive here, he is talking about doing something speedily, doing something immediately, uh, doing something by making it a priority. He says that you ought to be eager to do what I'm going to tell you to do because of what I've already told you. The word therefore is critical. In fact, if you come across the word therefore in the Bible, whatever verse you happen to be reading, may I encourage you always to go back and remind yourself of the context. The immediate context of this statement is in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, where we read, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. It's not just a physical rest that he has in mind, because if that was the case, then Joshua would have provided that for the Jews in the Old Testament. If not Joshua, then David certainly would have provided it. 
maybe you say not David even, but Solomon for sure, because everything was at peace and they had the land. And what the author is saying is that was merely a picture of the ultimate rest that you will find not in the land, but in Christ. Which is why when Christ himself taught on the Ten Commandments, when he talked about the Sabbath day, he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have not come to destroy the law. (laughs) Far from it, I've come to fulfill it. And the fulfillment of the law when it comes to the Sabbath is seen in me. I offer you a rest that is eternal. That's the rest that you are striving to enter. Rest from your works. Rest from trying to impress him. Rest from trying to earn his favor. Rest from trying to do the works of the law without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you need to strive for that, to enter that rest so that, and there's the purpose clause, so that no one may fall by the same sort of or the same example of disobedience. You see, he looks back to the previous section. There was an example of disobedience. The the, the Jews in the wilderness, they heard the good news and yet they didn't believe it. They refused to enter. They turned their back on God's offer. And so he says, you don't want to make that same mistake. But may I point out something very clearly to you right now, and I want you to pay very close attention. He says, I want you to strive to not disobey. The striving to enter the rest has an emphasis on striving that doesn't disobey. Please don't misunderstand this as you need to work really, really hard to get into the rest. You need to pass all these difficult challenges and get past these impenetrable barriers in order for you to earn the rest. Rest was not given to you as a reward. It was not earned. It was given as a gift. In fact, it was given and it was demanded that you rest No matter what your week had been like, that Sabbath came and you rested. And in the same way, when Christ offers rest, he says, you get it as a gift. The emphasis here is on striving so that you don't carelessly disobey. Consider it like this. If I were to approach you and say, I have given you a gift. It's an all-expenses-paid vacation. I have already paid for the hotel I've paid in advance for all of the meals. I've paid your first-class airfare to get there. In fact, everything is covered for you, but the plane leaves in two hours, and you've got to go now. Get in the car and head down to the airport. Good news, there's no traffic, and I've prepaid valet parking. All you need to do is go, but go quickly. Go swiftly. Go earnestly. Strive to get there. Make sure you obey. If you were to turn your back on that offer, it wouldn't compromise the sincerity of my offer. I've done it for you. I've paid for it. It is all there. The only thing you must do is obey. You must trust me. You must do what I say. In the same way, the author is saying, strive to enter that rest by going and obeying. You see, what the children of Israel didn't do is obey. God fought all their battles for them. You just need to read the book of Joshua to see how he went before them and fought all their battles for them. In fact, it was God who fought for them or even sometimes fought against them. It was always him. So the effort here to enter should be seen through the lens of the purpose clause, which is so that, the striving is so that 
you won't fall like your ancestors did because of disobedience. Now, this doesn't pick up the curse of the law and put it on your back again and say you've got to work harder, but rather it's a desire to obey that law because the curse has been borne by another. And the obedience then becomes this joyful act of gratitude. And anything less than that, beloved, is just religion. And it's never going to save. So the first thing you do as a habit of faith that is given to you is you respond, you obey. Secondly, you agree. Take a look at verses 12 through 13. This is such an amazing section of text. Perhaps one that has had more impact on me in the last several months than any other. And I say the word agree because a statement is about to be made here that a genuine believer must affirm and agree with. And I'm going to do everything I can to carefully explain this to you this morning, fully aware that for some, this will challenge the assumption you had about what this verse meant when you arrived here. And I take no joy in rattling your pre-held beliefs, but rather I believe it's my duty and responsibility to bring to light something that may have been overlooked, may have been learned out of context, may have been learned incompletely. And I will, by God's grace, endeavor to prove that by reasoning through the Scriptures with you. Verse 12 and 13 are perhaps some of the most well-known verses in this entire letter. When I read them to you earlier, many of you could have mouthed them along as I read. They have been ingrained into your mind, and they are verses that you've known for much of your life. But today, I want us to see them in a new light. I want us to see them in the context of the book of Hebrews. I want to see them in the context of what the author is trying to communicate to these people who had become slow and sluggish, who were not striving who are running the risk of becoming just like their ancestors with the land right there where they could see it, but they were captivated by not having the bread they wanted or the meat they wanted. They were grumbling and complaining and doubting God. And and so this, in light of that, brings clarity. He begins in verse 12, 4. And and, and true to what I said earlier, what does for mean? For means because. Because of what? You need to strive, in verse 11, because of this. Because the Word of God. Because of the Word of God. At the very outset, I want to say what my conclusion is, and then I will back up with proving it. I hope. This is not a reference to the Bible. The Bible contains the words of God, but in the context, this word of God is a statement, a verdict, a judgment, a decree, a statement. In this context, what we're looking at is God verbalizing something to the people, God speaking. God speaks through His prophets. God speaks through 
those that were put into positions of leadership and authority and given his word, but that word was a word that was a spoken word, and that is what the author has in mind here. In fact, I could go to other passages within the book of Hebrews to help prove this. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 5, we read this, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come having tasted of something, the Word of God. The the author is writing this before the New Testament was compiled or printed. In fact, before it was even completed. The Word of God, as we often refer to it, being the Bible, the collection of 66 books that we have in print, leather-bound, on your lap, is a relatively new phenomenon. And in fact, the books of the canon weren't even agreed upon by the early church until the 300s, They weren't mass-produced until the creation of the Gutenberg Press. Uh, They certainly weren't widely available at an affordable price until the 1800s, and it wasn't until that century that the apocryphal books were removed from most Bibles. So the Word of God, as understood and known at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, would have much more to do with what God says to people than about what what is held and contained. The word that was spoken in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, we also see this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The word of God produced it. Again, not the Bible, but the the spoken word of God, his decree, his order. This is what was spoken to by the leaders to the people. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The word of God in the book of Hebrews, the phrase word of God in the Bible, refers to God's speaking. There are 51 concrete occurrences in the English translation, word of God in the Bible, and all 51 of them reference God's verbal decree, His speaking, His gospel, His good news. Now, that is not to say that the Bible itself is not referred to as God's Word. It's not to say we can't do that. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't refer to the Bible as God's Word the way that we do. In fact, Psalm 19, one of the most specific places in which the Word of God as we know it is extolled, does not use the phrase Word of God. You can follow along if you'd like as I read this, or you can just make a note to look it up this afternoon. But this is what we read in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It is the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commands, the fear, the rules. This is how God's God's written code was described. And of course, as you know, when it was referred to in the New Testament as the Scriptures, it was referring to the Old Testament canon. Now, if you were to take a Bible and search it for every time the word word was used, you would find it occasionally, for example, in Psalm 119. But again, I believe that in those cases, we're talking here about the stated truth, the stated verbal proclamations of God. 
And that is what the author has in mind here. This particular word is a living word. Notice it in the rest of verse 12. The word of God, the judgment of God, is living. It's a living logos. You know that word logos for word? We've often used it before. The word logos is used up there. The logos of God is living. What does that mean? It means that it has a certain quality to it. And it's very common for the New Testament writers to talk about something being living. So once again, at the risk of maybe just having too many cross-references this morning, which is something I endeavor often not to do, uh, to build this biblical theology, we have to go back a little bit into some other verses to reinforce our point. But this word is living, much like other things are living. Let me give you some examples. They're going to come quickly, so you're going to write them down. Matthew 16, 16 says that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. John 4, 10, the woman at the well, Jesus offers her living water. John 6, 51, Jesus calls himself the living bread. Luke 24, 5, beautiful statement, why do you seek the living among the dead. Acts 7, 38, Moses received living oracles. That's another word for God's spoken word, living oracles. Hebrews 10, 19 to 20, within the very book itself, talking about something that is living. Listen to what the author says, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10. He says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and he goes on to describe that that the living word provides the living way to the living God for all who are truly living. It infuses every aspect of, of what he's trying to communicate to us in this text. Because it ends in that same section of Hebrews 10 with these absolutely chilling, chilling words that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The, the, the fear of landing in the hands of the living God permeates every aspect of Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. It is a warning, if you will, far greater than the so-called warnings in the book of Hebrews. Whole books have been written about the quote-unquote warning passages in Hebrews, most of which I think are really encouragements to simply remain on the way. If you want a warning passage, brothers and sisters, here it is. And I'm going to show you why in a moment, because this word is not only living, but it is also active, a word that means effective, It was used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, where he talked about having an open door for effective, active ministry. It was accomplishing something. It's used one other time in Philemon 1, 6, praying that Philemon's faith would become active and effective and visible in the church as it had become in the region. It means that it will accomplish its goal. So just to back up a little bit, because of potential disobedience, because of potentially not entering the rest, the the spoken word of God, His decree is living and it is absolutely effective. It will accomplish its goal, so much so that it is described as sharper than any two-edged sword. 
There were different types of swords that you would use in the old days. There were broad swords, long swords that you would bring down upon the head of your enemy in the hopes of cutting it in half. There were very small swords that were curved that you would use to get in close when you were fighting an enemy. And then there were these daggers, swords that were about 18 inches long, and they would be carried in a cloak or on the thigh, and they would be used as your up-close weapon. This is the kind of sword, and it is sharper, a word that appears nowhere else in the Bible. It is, it is razor sharp on both sides as a dagger, and it was used to kill sacrifices. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it is this word for sword that is used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, when it talks about what Abraham brought with him in order to, to kill Isaac. It is a sword that was thrust into something or someone. And when a sacrifice was about to be taken, that sword was plunged into the sacrifice. It is, incidentally, the same word that is used in Judges 3 of the sword that was used to kill King Eglon. Remember that story? The judge, Ehu, gets up close to Eglon and he says, and again, I just got to keep going with this, I have a word from the Lord. And Eglon stands up and he reaches over and he pulls out this type of sword and drives it in to that obese king's belly and the fat covers up over the handle, it says, and in graphic terminology, the dung came out. This is the sword that is in view here. This, this is not meant to comfort you with the idea that your Bibles are powerful weapons. It is meant to threaten you. It is meant to make you fearful. It is meant to make you realize what's at stake and what the risks are. And so, beloved, it would be completely inappropriate if we just gloss over this as merely a way to reinforce our, our bibliology. There's an ominous threat here. He says that it is so powerful that it pierces, a word that means slides easily into. It slides easily into its victim, to the division, the dissection of soul and spirit. The word soul is where we get the word psychology from, the word spirit where we get the word pneumatic or breath from. It's your very, your very life, your very breath it separates you at the immaterial level. It carves up and dissects us at every level. There's nowhere to turn. There's nothing in the immaterial part of us, in our, in our soul, in our, in our inner man, the inner woman, that is impervious to its effect. And not only that, but it also slices joint and marrow, the idea of physical. So it is comprehensive. It divides up the metaphysical and the physical, the internal and the external, the man seen and the man unseen, every part of us. And it discerns, notice, a word that means perfect judgment. It perfectly discerns the inner thoughts, the inner thinking, and the inner intentions, the inner will, the volition of the heart, which was the center of your reasoning. It goes to the very center of your inner thoughts, your inner feelings, generated by your inner reasoning. 
it drops all the way down, as it were, to where what's inside of you comes out and wraps around like Eglon's fat. And the dung of your self-righteousness and everything else that we try to hide from it, it, it cuts right into And to make matters worse, no creature, verse 13, is hidden from its sight. Nothing can be shielded, protected. No one is exempt. His eyes are on the righteous and the wicked, roaming through the earth, as Scripture says, visibly taking in everything. It is known to Him. It is revealed to Him. And far from those being hidden. In fact, he says, but, however, all are naked, meaning literally naked. You're as good as naked in front of him. Nothing covering you. The first thing Adam and Eve did when they realized they were naked is they covered themselves. It's not because Adam and Eve had not seen anything before with Adam and Eve. It's because they were hiding themselves from God. It was a, it was a picture. It was a, a metaphor for us, stringing together these Fig leaves to cover ourselves. He says, you're naked before him. And what's even more graphic is that you are also exposed in my English translation. And the word exposed here is very important. It's a word that means to tilt the head back. And what you have in view then is the sacrifice before the altar. And the priest puts his hand on the head of the sacrifice and pulls it back, exposing the neck and taking a very sharp two-edged sword, the same word used here, plunges that knife directly in to the artery in the neck and then pulls it out. You see, ancient sacrifices didn't have their throats slit. There was too much blood spilled out when that happened. You had to collect the blood. So instead, you strategically drove the blade into the artery and pulled it out so that a three-inch opening was made and a steady stream of blood would go in to the basin so you could then sprinkle it on the altar. And so, friends, that's graphic imagery, but that's what it is. A verse that is so often used, I'm afraid, out of context, memorized for its appeal, but not applied to the immediate or the general context. This is not a verse meant to comfort. It's a verse that's meant to threaten. It's a verse that's meant to leave you feeling completely known on the inside and on the outside, laid out naked with your head pulled back and a word of God's truth as a sword pressed right up against your throat. This is the indictment that you're supposed to feel. And so, when he says that you're in this position, you're in that position exposed, notice it, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word logos again in the original. It closes the loop of this particular point. It is the logos of God and his judgment against us against our logos, our word, 
our defense, our response. It is quite literally in the most profound sense, his word against mine. His holy, perfect, omniscient word and judgment against my wicked, sinful, defensive, ignorant excuse. And I have none. Nothing to say for myself. It's Romans 7, 7 to 25. O wretched man that I am, who is going to rescue me? I have good news. There's an answer, though. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 to 18 says this. When I saw him, this judge, he did what you and I would do, and I fell at his feet as though dead. The apostle John, who laid against Jesus' side at the Last Supper, reclining against his breast, sees him in his glory and falls down in front of him as dead. He doesn't run to him as an old friend. Nice to see you again, Jesus. He falls before him, shivering in terror as a dead man, like Isaiah did when he caught a glimpse of his holiness in the temple in Isaiah 6. I'm sorry, but modern Christian, so-called Christian songs about what you're going to do when you get to heaven, trust me, you're not going to dance in front of them or whatever other nonsense they like to sing about. What you're going to do is you are, apart from the righteousness of Christ that covers you, fall down in absolute abject terror at the reality of the glory of God. That's what any of us would do. But here's the good news. I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. You see our word again, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Where does the comfort come in the face of this judgment, in the face of this verdict? The comfort doesn't come from anything you've done. Comfort doesn't come from any works you've accomplished. The comfort comes from actually taking your eyes off yourself and pointing them to Christ and saying, He did it. He did it. He accomplished it. He satisfied the wrath of God. He paid for all of it. He's inviting me in. I come on his invitation. I come under his authority. I come clothed in his righteousness. He has made the way through the veil for me. I come clinging on to him. The only way that the author to the Hebrews can bring comfort to this group of Christians who are struggling with all of the persecution they're facing and the temptation to go back to their old Judaism is to remind them that whatever the law promised had been accomplished in Christ, and if you forsake him, you've forsaken the accomplishment of it, and you've got to stand before God with your own record instead. And he says, God forbid you ever think that way. At the risk of alarming some of you in terms of losing this verse as an understanding of the Bible, I, I do want to comfort you that there are plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about the authority of the Bible. <laughs> Usually use the word scripture, graphe, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is a wonderful example of that. 
The word oracles is used, scripture is used, but again, as the New Testament was being written, and no one who wrote in the New Testament wrote at the time when the Testament had been written. They're all writing it in real time, so they they would not have, have looked to it. They understood the Holy Spirit to be inspiring it, but what they really were able to do is look back at the Old Testament scriptures. Every word of God that we hold in our hand in written form is inspired, inerrant, We know that. We're looking back on it now after its completion. So the word scriptures, oracles are appropriate. But in this context, and again, context is everything. You don't understand the verse unless you understand the context. Beloved, memorize verses, it's great. But even better, understand and memorize thoughts, units. It'll be much clearer for you. So first... The faithful one responds. Second, they agree. They agree with what was being stated about God's holy judgment. And thirdly, they confess. Here's where your hope is. Verse 14 begins with the word since. Since, on account of everything we just saw about that that declaration of God which renders us as good as judged and hopeless before Him, on account of that position, leaving us for a moment in that condition of hopelessness and wretchedness, there's a wonderful gospel remedy and rescue. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. (laughs) You see, good news. Good news. I don't have to come up with an excuse. I don't have to come up with an answer. I don't have to to meet a standard. Good news. Someone's already done it for me. And they have passed through, same, same phrase as the camel that passes through the eye of a needle, right? Easier for that to happen than a rich man to enter into heaven. The the one has passed through already, and he is my great high priest. He is the one who, like in the Old Testament, takes the blood and goes into the Holy of Holies, he alone, and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. But in the Old Testament, that priest had to sprinkle blood for himself first because he was a sinner, and then he had to do it for the people, but he had to do it every year because it wasn't permanent and it was never ultimate. And what I'm looking to now is the one who has risen from the dead. He has passed through the heavens, just like the priest passed through the veil. And he is living again in the Holy of Holies as the priest entered the Holy of Holies. And he puts his own blood on the mercy seat, which covered every expectation of the law, just like the priest covered the mercy seat in blood that contained the law. And now he is awaiting the time to return and come out from that Holy of Holies in in triumphant glory to the sound of the trumpet and the celebration of the people, just like what happened in the Old Testament. Do you see that? And that's the one that you put your hope in. It's not about turning your eyes to your, yourself. It's about always putting your eyes on Him. And that's the glory of it, everybody. And we state that to ourselves regularly. That he has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And the application comes in two parts, one in verse 14 and one in verse 16. Let us, let us. What do we do then? Let us hold fast. Word means seize. Let us, let us grab onto and seize our confession. A confession 
meant that you speak it together. Um, churches for hundreds and hundreds of years had confessions of faith. It's very recently that we have abandoned those. The historic confessions of faith goes back to the early creeds. And then you have, for example, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1644, and then the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, and then in America you had a Philadelphia Confession of Faith, a New Hampshire Confession of Faith. It was very common for these churches to rally around something they believed together. And you said it to one another to remind one another of what you believe. And so the author is saying, encourage one another, come alongside one another, and confess this to one another. Remind one another that this is what we believe. I believe we are weaker today because of the abandonment of traditional confessions and even catechisms. I, I do. It can be taken to an extreme where it becomes overly liturgical and, and institutional and can become deprived of the vitality that the gospel should bring. But there is also something very rich in our heritage that has really been abandoned, mostly since the Second World War when churches just began to form up around whatever preferences that people had. Here, going back to the Bible times, they would hold together this confession. That's why I said we confess this together and what is it? Verse 15, the confession is this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What does it mean for him to sympathize with our weaknesses? You can go over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34 where it's further expounded. I'll pick it up beginning in verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He can sympathize with our weaknesses our temptations to go back, our fear. And he had shows compassion to us the way that we show compassion to others. He was tempted, as it were, in all ways as we were. In every single likeness that you are tempted, he was tempted, yet without sin. We could say so much more about the nature of his temptation, but for the sake of time, and because we will be covering it in great detail in future sermons, let me just remind you of this, that his temptation was not less because he was God incarnate, but more. And the reason we say that in the simplest terms possible is that as mortals in flesh, you have a breaking point. He says you'll never be tempted beyond what you can withstand, meaning there is a point beyond which you cannot stand. Do you understand the logic? And so he says, I, you will not be tempted beyond that which you can endure, that which you can stand. That promise was not given to Jesus Christ because there was not a point by which he could not withstand. And therefore, every single capability that the world, the flesh, the devil, and all of the raging fires of hell possessed were thrown at him the entire time of his incarnational ministry. And it was to a degree that was beyond anything you or I could possibly comprehend. 
So never assume that his temptations were less because of his divinity. They were actually far more. What suffered the consequences of that temptation were the cursed humanity that he inhabited, but what protected him from never sinning was the deity, truly God and truly man, and therefore truly able to experience both to the possible degree, to the infinite possible degree. We respond, we agree, we confess. One more point for this morning in this text, and that is that we approach. We approach. This ends on a high note, by the way, so be encouraged. Uh, I know this won't go down in history as like the happiest sermon ever preached, but that wasn't the goal of the uh, author either, and that is a concern for us. We want to make sure that we are faithful to what we believe the author intends to communicate here, and this is what he is doing. But in this, there is actually ultimate joy and and comfort because not only do we hold fast to this confession that we have an advocate, but let us also then with confidence. The confidence doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the fact that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, who has already entered the Holy of Holies. But he says, with confidence. It means open, public, visible. Lord's Supper, for example, is celebrated openly, publicly, before others. Say, I I can approach with confidence the very symbols of the body and blood that makes it possible for me to enter into the Holy of Holies. I do that with confidence. I, I draw near to the throne of grace. I listen to that invitation to come forward. And the purpose is this, so that we may receive, literally, we may take hold of in our, in our hands, in our grip, we may take hold of mercy. Isn't it a wonderful thought that you approach the throne that dispenses grace and you receive and hold on to mercy that is given to you and in so doing, you find the grace you need. That word find is a beautiful word. It's a word that means discover. Discover it again. Why is it so great to celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's not because um, this is anything magical. If if, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're wondering what goes on here, or maybe you come from a tradition that says uh, the priest does something and this becomes Jesus' real body and real blood, it's none of that. This is a reminder. It's a memorial. It, It looks back to what he's done for us and looks forward to what He will do for us and reminds us of what He is doing for us. And we discover afresh, every time we do it, the amazing, infinite grace. And that is the greatest help we have in time of need. We gather together as people who are in great need. And that need is satisfied as we look to Christ. That need is satisfied when we see our mediator, that need is satisfied. When we do what he told us to do, which is to take the bread and take the cup as a reminder of his body and blood and encourage one another with our mutual confession that our merciful high priest lives (laughs) to make intercession for us. 
And will I deserve to be executed at the command of that word of God? And while I lay naked and exposed and vulnerable, and while I lay sliced open to the deepest core of who I am, I can acknowledge it, but I don't have to worry about making up for it because he's already done that for me and he's done it for you if you put your faith in him. And if you haven't yet put your faith in him, may I remind you this morning, it's not about a series of works you must perform, certainly not about cleaning yourself up enough to earn his favor. It is about simply looking to him in faith. There's much that can be said about that, and we will explain a little bit more as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But for now, let me just leave this with you. Christ has promised that all those who come to him in faith will not be cast out, and that he invites you to come to him, all ye who are weak and heavy laden, because he will give you rest. Rest from your sin and rest from your self-righteousness. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare to receive these symbols of your body and blood, I ask that you would remind us today of the opportunity we have to rediscover the glorious mercy and grace of the gospel. You have brought us to the place where we've seen ourselves to the best of our ability, though I suspect in even greater and more positive ways than we should, of just how horrible our state is before you without Christ. But you have also assured us of the pardon of sin that will come from those who place their faith in the finished work of your son. And so I implore you to do what you have said you will do, which is that if your son is lifted up, he will draw people unto himself. May today be the day where you draw some who have yet to receive that gift for your glory and for our eternal joy. And all God's people said, amen.